Open our eyes, Lord, that we might see. Open our ears that we might hear. Open our mind and our heart that we might understand, so that we will turn to you and live. We, our gospel reading this morning comes from Matthew chapter 5. If you're familiar with the gospel of Matthew at all, you know that this is in the midst of uh, sort of the greatest hits of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. It's the greatest sermon to ever be preached. It spans over three chapters in Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And this is the very beginning And I want to put all my cards out on the table about a few things that I think about Jesus. The first is that Jesus was not some wandering guru with all of these aimless sayings, sort of wandering through the desert, and he would tell a story about uh, two children who run away from home, or he would tell a story uh, about a fig tree, or have all these sayings about who is blessed and who is not blessed. But I would argue, as I've said before, I believe Jesus to be the smartest person who's ever lived. And again, not just IQ, but in touch with reality more than anyone who had ever lived and will ever live. As the one through whom all creation had been created, who was holding creation together and then embodying that very creation. No one had or has or will ever have a better grasp on reality than Jesus. And so Jesus comes as the smartest person who's ever lived and has something to say. And Jesus is intentional, not just about what he says, but how he says it, for the reason why he's going to say the things he does. Again, he's not haphazardly choosing stories to tell in his parables. What Jesus is doing is he is attempting to subvert the ongoing assumptions of how life is intended to work, of who is a good person, how do you become a good person, how do you become blessed. We talk all the time about Jesus turning the world upside down. Brendan said it, I have it in my notes, so I'm not picking on him, I'm gonna say it a little bit later too. But I wonder sometimes if a better way to understand what Jesus is doing is not turning the world upside down, but turning it back to rights, turning it right side up. And so there's a few movements I'm gonna invite us to sit with this morning. I'm not gonna go line by line through the Beatitudes. Rather, I'm gonna invite us to stay at a rather high level, not just in these words, but in the whole entire Sermon on the Mount. And the first movement, I've already hinted at this a little bit, is that it is this, that this sermon is not theoretical. Uh, This sermon is a lot of different things, but the one thing it is not is theoretical. And that is how many of us have heard it, that what Jesus is giving to us is instructions on how to live, a new law, new instructions that are almost transactional in their nature. If you do this, this will happen. But that is not what Jesus is doing. He's not giving us a transactional formula for how to live. Life with Jesus, following Jesus as the disciple of Jesus, is not about trying harder to live out the Sermon on the Mount. Because just for a moment, think about how the world actually works. The morning are almost never fully comforted. The meek are usually run straight over. 
The hungry and the thirsty are never truly fully filled. The pure in heart are often taken advantage of. The peacemakers never truly see lasting peace. They spend their lives fighting for justice that very few of them will ever see take place. Even this morning, I picked up the New York Times on the Sunday edition that gets delivered to our house early this morning. And just on the front cover alone, we're reminded that the world doesn't naturally work in what Jesus is speaking to. Multiple stories of whether it's the murder of Tyree in Memphis, the story of two men who escaped uh, the war-torn parts of Ukraine and Russia on a boat, follow-up to the terrorist attack in Jerusalem, to the mass shooting on New Year's Day, the Lunar New Year's Day, multiple different stories that this world doesn't work the way it's explained here. Even a few years ago, an author, Zach Hunt, on his blog on Patheos, put out a list of American Beatitudes. I'm going to read a few of them. He says, here are a few Beatitudes that sort of govern American thinking. Blessed are those who have the most stuff, for they will find prestige and comfort in their things. Blessed are those who hold a grudge, for vengeance shall be theirs one day. Blessed are the rich, for they shall be envied and have their way in all things. Blessed are those who exploit the poor and the weak, for unto them all things shall be cheap and made available on demand. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for security above all else, for they shall find peace just over the horizon. Blessed are those who ignore the desperate cries of their neighbors, for theirs is the assurance of knowing God helps those who help themselves, not complainers. I wonder what beatitudes you and I could add to this list. Not just ones that we're aware of, but maybe the even more subtle ones that we live by. The transactional formula that governs our lives, our strategy for how we're going to navigate life. What Jesus is not giving us is a formula. What Jesus is saying, though, is I would argue what Jesus is saying is that because Jesus has arrived, something new is happening. Something new is happening. Most of the time, the world works through bullying and coercion and violence. But every now and again, if we're honest, Something new, something upside down happens. What Jesus is saying is something new is possible for the people of God. And let me show you what I mean. We began our reading in Matthew chapter 5, but if you go back just a few verses to Matthew chapter 4, 23, Matthew writes this. Jesus went through Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. And so his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, and paralytics, and he cured them. He did something new. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. And these, friends, are the crowds that Jesus sees when Matthew writes in verse 1 of chapter 5, when Jesus saw the crowds. A few things 
One, the point of all of Jesus' sermons, in fact, one of the things you're most often taught when it comes to preaching is you really only have one thing to say. And I've told you this before, I have one sermon I just preach over and over and over and over again. Jesus had one sermon and it was this, repent for the kingdom of God is near, it has come. Which again sounds very religious and very spiritual. So maybe a different way of putting it is rethink your strategy for living. Rethink your thinking of how you are living life. Rethink your strategy. Because a new and good thing from God is approaching. A better shorthand for this is life doesn't have to be like this. Something new is possible. Because friends, these crowds were experiencing something new. They weren't being told that something new will come one day in the future, in eternity, but here and now. People were bringing people to Jesus, and so when Jesus looks up in Matthew chapter 5, beloved, these are the faces he sees. He sees the poor in spirit. He sees the mourning. He sees the meek. He sees those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. He sees the merciful. He sees the pure in heart. He sees the peacemakers, the ones who have been trampled and who will be trampled, run over by a world that doesn't work like that. And what Jesus is trying to say is when I come into the scene occasionally, things happen that you will not expect. So I think one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is do we have room for that? Genuinely, do you and I have room for God to do something we don't expect? Or have we been lulled into cynicism because we know how this is gonna go? And I will confess, more days than not, I'm in the latter part of being lulled into cynicism because I have enough street smarts to know how this is gonna work out and this is gonna go. And so what's the point of praying? What's the point of hoping against hope? What's the point of looking for anything new? And I think the invitation Holy Spirit would extend to me and to you would be to ask ourselves, are we willing to make room for the unexpected? Are we willing to make room for God's restoration and for God's healing? Would you believe that you are not the best thing you've done or the worst thing you've ever done? Friends, Jesus is saying there is something better. And that brings us to our second movement that we are blessed. We are blessed. Blessed are those, says Jesus. A few years ago, I heard a mentor reframe this word blessed for me. It's changed the way that I've read Jesus' words. He said a better way to understand blessed is that God has something good to say. Which means that if you are broken, if you are a broken person in that crowd or you're a broken person in this one, beloved, God has something good to say to you. If you are mourning, God has something good to say. If you are fighting and working for justice in a broken system, God has something good to say. And you 
are never beyond God having something good to say to you, ever. Wherever you find yourself, you are never beyond the place that God doesn't have something good to say to you. But, life has a way of wearing us down, doesn't it? Some of you are exhausted. Some of you are exhausted. And you don't know how long you can keep it up. Jesus has something to say good to you. And this isn't Disneyland theology. I could do a whole entire series called Things Bliss's Therapist Said to Him. (laughs) I tell you a lot of them. Years ago, he looked at me and said, Bliss, took off his glasses, put his notepad and his pen to the side looks at me and goes, you understand life can't always be Disneyland, right? Because I want it to. I want it for you. I want it for me. Any of us who have experienced pain and trauma and loss, you don't want that for anyone. For yourself, for your friends. Jesus knew this. Jesus wasn't giving pie in the sky bumper sticker statements. Are you hungry for God? You'll be filled. You long for justice? You'll see it happen. Because Jesus himself knew that not every wound would be fully healed. Not every relationship would be fully restored. That not every hunger would be satisfied that not every story would be wrapped up in a bow, but every now and then, something new breaks in. Healing comes, restoration comes, peace arrives. And I think that's what Jesus is saying. Which brings us finally to the third movement, my kingdom is coming here and now. God is saying, my kingdom is beginning to unfold against all odds in this world, here and now. And so again, I would ask, do we have room for God to come? Because God doesn't wrangle. I've said this before, he doesn't kick down the door like a SWAT team. Most often, he's on the edges, waiting, not wrangling, for us to make room and invite God in. Do we have room for God to come, for God's reign and rule, for the boundaries of his peaceable kingdom to come here and now? Because friends, God is sowing seeds of his kingdom. We may not always have eyes to see them, but God is. I was reminded of this walking through the Atlanta airport this past week. We were down in Florida uh, with my in-laws And on our way back, I had not really been on my phone too much and hadn't been keeping up with the news. And so as we landed in Atlanta, which is my hometown, I opened up um, my New York Times app and suddenly just get slammed with all of the news that I had missed. 
but especially the tragic, unjust murder of Tyree in Memphis. We had two and a half hours to kill, and so, as any good parents do, we walked. Get those wiggles out. And in Atlanta, it's quite a bit of distance between the terminals, and so as we're walking through and we're trying to skip the moving sidewalk as much as possible, because again, you want to wear them out. But they have all of the history of Georgia and Atlanta, beginning with the indigenous people who lived there, who had their land taken, moving into the introduction of slavery to this prison colony that has now become a state. Begins to go through the different history of the Civil War, and eventually we move into the Civil Rights era. And there they have the names and the pictures of seeds of God's kingdom you've heard of. People like Martin Luther King Jr., the late John Lewis. Those people who, names we know, who were planting seeds of the kingdom. See, growing up in Atlanta, I knew a few more names that had those names not existed, we would never have had people like Martin Luther King Jr., John Lewis. Think about Alberta, who was a monumental figure in Ebenezer Baptist Church in downtown Atlanta. A church who she served in ways seen and unseen for years and decades, faithfully fighting for justice, returning to the good news of the kingdom in a church where her son, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., would be formed in his understanding. Stories like Brian Stevenson, who will be here in March, who won reversals, relief, and release from prison for over 135 wrongly convicted people. Those are seeds of the kingdom, friends. But there's even, and they're not my stories to tell, and so I won't, there are stories in our own congregation of countless women and men welcoming the stranger, creating, story, creating space for stories to be told, sometimes for the first time ever, and for little by little healing and restoration to begin to take place. In fact, I would argue also Charlottesville doesn't exist if God isn't doing something new. And also Charlottesville will not continue to exist if God isn't the kind of God who is able to hold the tension I struggle to hold, which is the reality of a world that has little interest in God, but that God holds because God loves, and who is doing new things, unexpected things, if we're willing to look and to see and to notice in that world. And as I've already said, the seeds are not happily ever after. It's not what Jesus is doing in the Sermon on the Mount, or here's how to live happily ever after. He's not talking about how to manage and and control outcomes. Oh, it would be so nice if that's how that worked. Jesus is not telling us how to manage and and control our outcomes. 
But what he is saying is live like God is in control and there will be power there. And so are we open to the possibility of the new? Are you open to being open? Are you open to being open to being open? And I'll end with these final words from Jesus. Because Jesus, if Jesus were here in the flesh today, would look out and would say to you what he said to the crowds. Because again, we've oftentimes heard these verses as, do you want to be the salt of the earth? Do you want to be the light of the world? Here's how to do it. The problem is it's not what Jesus says. Because he looks out on that crowd, many of which will walk away from him completely. He looks at them and says this. You are the salt of the earth. You, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you. You bring out the flavor in my world and in this new reality. You, and you, and you, and you, and you, and you are the light of the world. A beacon of light in a world gripped by darkness. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Amen. And so Jesus, would you by your grace give us the wisdom the power, the ability to name reality as it is. To mourn with those who mourn. To grieve with those who grieve. To name injustice where we see it. And would you also, by your grace, little by little, make us into the kind of people who are looking for how you might surprise and come in expected and unexpected ways. And we pray this, Jesus, in your name, amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.